You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 556 of this podcast. If you are familiar with firearms you will know that that is a common caliber for the ar-15 it is a 556 episode no we're not going to talk all about guns in this episode but i will i will just briefly mention that 556 is a good round it's an okay round anyways today is friday february 10th 2023 to give you some additional numbers to think about and (laughs) also too It just so happens to be the day after I took my oldest son, Josiah, on his first driving lesson. Yesterday, he went with his mother to the DMV, took his written test to get his learner's permit, came home, and about three o'clock yesterday afternoon, we went out driving in the neighborhood just to practice some basic maneuvers. Speed up slow down. Let's focus on being smooth with that, figuring out how the vehicle handles. Also, let's practice observing the speed limit and the uh, stop signs and uh, traffic, pedestrians, all the rest. Just teaching him the basics. Here's what all you should be checking. And here are some good habits. And let's start slow. Let's lay the foundation for being a good driver. So that was just really, really exciting in our household, really excited for him. He's very conscientious, and so he will do great. And it's kind of surreal, honestly, as my wife and I are trying to come to terms with our oldest son now being old enough to have his learner's permit, 15 and a half. He'll be 16 this summer. There's a part of us that obviously asks the question, are we old enough to have a son who is able to drive. Is this real? Is this real life? Are we there yet? Wow. When did that happen? And actually, truth be told, it's all the more surreal because we remember back to about this time in life for us when we first met. It wasn't all that long after I got my learner's permit that Lauren and I actually met for the first time. It was around that time. It was around that point that we met for the first time. And initially, we did not get along super well. We got on each other's nerves a little bit. And I'll admit, I pestered her. I was uh, the one that was annoying to her first. And then her being irritated with me caused me to be irritated right back, like, why are you irritated with me? Now I'm irritated that you're irritated. But we worked through that. We talked about it and compared notes and became really good friends. And in the course of becoming really good friends and talking about life generally, it occurred to me that my being able to talk with her comfortably was very, very important. That was very dear to me that I believed I was able to have conversation and open up and be honest and be real. And she in turn as well was able to talk with me about 
life and about what was going on and what her hopes were and what she enjoyed and what she didn't enjoy and what was upsetting, perhaps, what problems there were that she was trying to think through or navigate and also what opportunities there were that she was trying to pursue. And in the due course of time, we decided and believed after praying and consulting God's word and people that we trusted that not only should we date per se, but we should commit to getting married and we should get married and we should be husband and wife and we should raise a family. And some eight and a half months after we got married, along came Josiah. He was born to two poor uh, college students or college dropouts, if you will, who now somehow are old enough to be taking him to get his learner's permit and then taking him on his first driving lesson. And it's just amazing. It's amazing what God has done in bringing Lauren and I together. It amazes me. I'm extremely thankful for the good Lord's providence in this regard, for his guidance, not just that we have just the general design, how we're made, but that he's also given us his word to tell us who he is and to reveal his character and his plans and his promises and his design and his intentions and his commands and his prohibitions and his grace in all of its various forms that we have his word to know truth and to be set free by the truth and to be given life by his truth. I'm thankful that we have his spirit, that we can go to him and ask for wisdom when we lack it or when we need it. I'm thankful that God gives us wisdom. And it was a wise thing that Lauren and I got married when we did, as young as we did, had kids, including but not limited to Josiah, who is now old enough to be driving. And uh, I'm just excited to see what God does in the lives of our children, what God does in Lauren's in my life moving forward. We are by no means perfect people. We do not have it all together, but he gives more grace. And so we depend on that grace and we will continue to depend on that grace. And I look forward to seeing what by God's grace comes in the years ahead. But also yesterday, another fun thing about yesterday I finished my first game of Twilight Struggle using Tabletop Simulator. It's a game that's available on Steam, uh, at least. But I played this game at the behest of my friend, Paul Pavlik, who ended up actually gifting me a copy of Tabletop Simulator, and then thereafter proposing that we check out this game. He knows I like strategy games. And so it was a really good fit since he's been wanting to play this game for quite some time. It was a good fit that I would play it with him and we would both try it out for the first time. But my family's been getting into board games a lot here the past several weeks. And I credit Paul with that because he and his family coming over and bringing their game unmatched got us kickstarted. And then we played again this past Sunday, my family and his family and me and him after church. It was super fun. My kids have been playing that game at home 
just with each other. And I think that's a really good thing. It's good for them to practice those interpersonal back and forth uh, skills. And it's good for their relationships. It's good for their cognitive development, their emotional development. It's good for our household dynamic. But then too, this game, Twilight Struggle, this is a little bit of a different game, similar to Risk, but distinct. Definitely more complex than Risk. And also uh, just a great way, in my opinion, to learn about history is to experience a kind of simulation of history. And that's basically what tri- t- that's basically what Twilight Struggle is. It's a simulation of the Cold War. So the game starts off in 1945 and it goes on until 1989. And the way that it's set up is you've got a map of the world and all of the countries are delineated within regions, right? So the United States of America, it can't be changed. It can't change hands. One player is the United States of America. So also with the Soviet Union or at least uh, Russia, (laughs) at least Russia and some of those surrounding states uh, that were part of the core of the Soviet Union can't change hands. One player is the Soviet Union and that's where they start, and then the U.S. starts where the U.S. is. But then outward from that, you've got Central America and South America. You've got Europe divided between West and East Europe. You've got the Middle East. You've got Africa. You've got Asia. You've got Southeast Asia in particular. And very similar to risk, you're trying to uh, take these countries for one side or the other. If you're the U.S., you're trying to influence the countries of the world into your orbit and out of the orbit of the Soviet Union. Vice versa, if you're the Soviet player, you're trying to influence these countries into your orbit, out of the American orbit, and you have 10 turns to do so. You have 10 turns to score 20 points over and above what your opponent has. If you get to a different victory condition before that 10 turns is over or before uh, either of you get to uh, 20 points through some other means, you can definitely win the game sooner than 10 turns. But within each of those turns, you've got rounds and you've got cards that you are each dealt based on whether it's early, mid or late war period. So depending on the timeline, whether you're closer to 1945 or 1989, you get different cards that correspond to events or personalities that were in that time frame. And you get to play those cards, but some of those cards are decidedly Soviet in their effect. And some of those cards are decidedly American in their effect, but then you get both, right? You get Soviet cards, you get American cards. And you have to make a judgment call each round within a turn whether you're going to play a American card, if you're America, and have all benefit, pretty much, or whether you're going to play a Soviet card for influence points and potentially skew uh, the, you know, the timeline in a convenient way. You're, you're kind of um, 
springing the trap, right? If if the Soviets are going to do something and you get wind of that, you can spring the trap, as it were, at a time of your choosing, and and so therefore blunt the effect. But the whole game, the whole game is predicated on the mindset which both the U.S. and the Soviet Union were locked in during the Cold War, which I think you can sum up, and Wikipedia's article for Twilight Struggle agrees with this, you can sum up with domino theory. So domino theory was why we went into Vietnam. It's why we went into Korea. It's why we invested weapons and money and training and sometimes personnel in other regions of the world. It's why both the U.S. and the Soviet Union tried to launch coups or sponsor coups through their intelligence agencies in countries so as to enact regime change and get regimes that would be more friendly to their politics or their uh, interests around the world. Domino theory is the key to understanding the Cold War. Domino theory is actually also the, the key to understanding a lot of what's going on in a geopolitical sense today. So the Ukraine is not just important because you know we hate for anybody, anybody to be having their country ravaged by war. Ukraine is important because first and foremost, we don't want Russia taking Ukraine because they take Ukraine and then they take something else and something else and something else. And there's a domino effect that eventually could lead, if uninterrupted, if America doesn't intervene in particular, it could lead to Russia taking over the whole world. Or That's the concern. That's the worry. But so also, if you ask somebody who's pro-Russia why they're in Ukraine, they will say it's just the opposite. If we allow Ukraine to go over into the orbit of NATO and the EU and the United States of America, well then, that also is going to be a domino effect in our direction, and we can't allow that. So we're going in, we're going to have an extended military exercise, i.e. we're going to invade Ukraine and essentially you know, ravage the country until it surrenders and gives up and it's ours as a show of force and also as a very practical and utilitarian, either depending on how you look at it, act of aggression to try and take over the world or an act of defense to keep the other side from steamrolling you. And so here we are, right? Here, here we are looking at the situation in Ukraine, all over the world. Everybody is looking at this. Also, the potential for a hot war over Taiwan. If China tries to take over Taiwan, there's the potential for an out-and-out hot war. Well, in, in the lead-up, in the lead-up to prevent things going hot to where the United States and the Soviet Union reborn in the form of Russia and China, to prevent us from launching nukes at each other and having thermonuclear war that would destroy the planet, destroy all life on planet Earth, we're doing this cat and mouse game constantly. And there are all these events and personalities and personages and all of this careful curation of the news and public discourse that's going on and public perception that's going on so as to accomplish a victory for one side or the other, or at least to prevent a victory for the other side. 
in very non-linear ways, in very indirect ways. See also B.H. Liddell Hart's strategy, the indirect approach. Instead of us just throwing uh, down and having an out-and-out hot war, we're going to have a cold war where we're going to try and jockey for a position in various non-violent ways, you could say even passive-aggressive ways. And as such, as, as that is the moment that we're in right now with a second Cold War, so to speak, playing a game like Twilight Struggle is a very interesting way to understand the last Cold War between American and communistic forces around the world. Or forces that were in the American orbit versus forces that were in primarily the Russian orbit, the Soviet orbit. But we finished up our game last night, had a great time, really enjoyed playing that with Paul, and I would love to play it again. I think the first game we played, very long, very similar to Twilight Imperium, which is a sci-fi game. That's another story, but that's a game I've talked about on this podcast. Very long the first game, but surely if we played it again, it would be uh, much, much quicker, probably half the time that it took us to play our first game. And it would be interesting. It, it would be interesting to see how another game goes sometime. But speaking of, right, speaking of Cloak and Dagger and the Cold War and communists and passive aggression, <laughs> in this episode, I really want to talk about the FBI and not just the FBI, but the idea of government corruption. The idea that we have these people who are in positions of authority, sometimes we know who they are, and sometimes uncomfortably we don't know who they are. We don't know who it is that's actually monitoring or surveilling or interfering or uh, affecting and adjusting and tweaking our perceptions or our actions or our options, humanly speaking. And I want to talk about that here in a little bit, delving into some recent testimony and some recent news items surrounding the FBI, but also not just the FBI. I mean, there are bigger problems than just covert agents, intelligence agents, you know, having a political agenda that would see me as a threat or see you as a threat potentially, or see you or I as getting in the way. There's more to it than that because there's what you see on a surface level. And then there's also things that are hidden in plain sight, which is to say things that we think we are aware of and we know enough about, but which increasingly I hear, I just don't understand. I don't, I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. When we see again and again, weird trends and fads and debates and inconsistencies in the public discourse or in public policy or in the behavior of bureaucracies, we should understand that there is a way that all of these things can make sense. So if we shake our head and we say, that just doesn't make any sense to me, this is just crazy, you have to understand that it does make sense. It can make sense if we're looking at it from the right angle or if we are filling in missing puzzle pieces with history and context 
and worldview and philosophy. And, and what I mean by philosophy is what is the philosophy of somebody who goes rogue at the FBI and decides to start targeting uh, you know, conservative Americans in politics and in the general public? You know, what is the philosophy of somebody at a big tech company who decides that you just don't need to be heard anymore? Your account doesn't need to be active anymore. You don't need to be on this platform anymore because you're not safe. What is the philosophy of somebody who is pushing for the use of preferred pronouns, even by school children, that the idea that school children in our public schools could get in trouble, they could get punished, even expelled if they misgender somebody or if they use pronouns that the other person doesn't want them to use, but but which do, right? But which do correspond to the gender of the other person, the assigned gender, aka how God made them actually, initially. If they're a boy, we're using male pronouns. If they're a girl, we're using female pronouns because that just, that, that's just the way that it is. That's right. That is right and that is good and that is true. And if you're trying to force somebody to use other pronouns that don't correspond to their actual gender, well then, the other side of the coin is that is bad. That's evil. That's corrupt. That's false. It's a lie. You're trying to get people to affirm a lie. Now, why would that be, right? A lot of us are saying, well, that just doesn't make any sense. I, I'm just, I'm so confused and this is just crazy. And it's like, well, yes, yes, it is crazy, but there are some non-crazy people who are pushing this because they have a certain view of the world and they have a certain philosophy and they have a certain larger ambition, which they see this as being uh, a, a way to further, right? And and I would say this is from a cultural standpoint, from a domestic, you know, just our own internal affairs societally here in the U.S., there is a domino theory playing out in these things that actually makes them make sense. It makes them make sense when you put these seemingly disconnected, unrelated elements into that kind of a framework. And you realize that some non-crazy people, you know, at least if we're speaking in a clinical sense, some very non-crazy people, some very rational, successful, sharp, uh, if not wise, at least very clever, at least very shrewd people are pushing this. And why is that? right? What are they believing or what do they know or what do they want that makes it make sense that they are doing and saying the things that they're doing? Are they really taken in? Are they really crazy? Are they really deceived? Or is there a way that we can understand their engagement that, that makes sense, actually, without just saying they're crazy? I think there is. I, I really do. I think there is. And I think it is to our benefit to consider what that common thread is and what the alternative is to supposing that they're just all uh, bonkers. They all need to be in straight jackets and mental hospitals and on medication. 
you know, just here close to home, here close to home. There's an article from Trevor Reed published just the day before yesterday in the Greeley Tribune. Civil Rights Division orders mediation after finding probable cause in discrimination claims against High Plains Library District. High Plains Library District is the local library here in Greeley. That is our library district. And the story goes as follows, and I'll just read from the top. The Colorado Civil Rights Division on Wednesday ordered the High Plains Library District to undergo mediation with a former librarian who accused the district of discrimination after her firing in December 2021. The division found probable cause in Brookie Park's complaints that she was fired from her position as the teen services librarian at the Erie Community Library based on her association with youth of color and LGBTQ youth. In November 2021, Parks previously said she received a note from Marjorie Elwood, the district's associate director of public services, about a couple programs Parks had planned, including a Read Woke Book Club, a program during Pride Month about the LGBTQ movement and an anti-racism workshop for teens. She was told the book club had to be renamed and the other programs canceled due to their polarizing nature, she said. The district answered that the policy change that led to the programming changes was only part of the district's efforts to earn a Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award, which meant making certain performance and resource considerations about what the district was offering. One month later, Parks was issued a written warning in a performance evaluation for events that were more than a year old with inaccurate or out-of-context information, she said. She was fired the next day. Parks hired Iris Halpern, a civil rights attorney and partner at Rathid, Mohammed Bai, LLC, who identified the district's actions as discrimination. Parks, in February 2022, filed complaints with the Colorado Civil Rights Division and the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. The division found that the warning issued to Parks was for incidents that weren't substantiated, including, quote, failing to step in and help with things, end quote, and looking, quote, withdrawn and unhappy, end quote, during meetings. The district maintains Parks wasn't satisfactorily performing her job duties and that the warning was based on, quote, poor customer service, negative behaviors, failing to attend to the important details of her job, and insubordination, end quote, according to the division's findings. According to the division, evidence shows Parks expressed to Marjorie Elwood, Associate Director of Public Services, and Eric Ewing, Associate Director of Human Resources, that the warning was in retaliation for supporting the closing of the district for Martin Luther King Jr. Day and for opposing the district's new policy that led to the cancellation of her programs. Ewing, according to the division, said High Plains Executive Director Matthew Hort made the decision to fire Parks due to, quote, the content of her rebuttal, end quote, indicating she wasn't going to address the concerns in the written warning. Hort, Ewing, and Elwood failed to follow up on Parks' rebuttal and to follow up with her allegations of discrimination and retaliation, the division stated in its findings. The division found that Parks was fired for, quote, pretextual unsubstantiated reasons and or 
for advocating on behalf of youth of color, LGBTQ plus youth and her programs, which serve and or target marginalized youth, end quote. It supported Park's claim of discriminatory firing and retaliation. It also found Hort, Ewing, and Elwood responsible for aiding and abetting discrimination. The division ordered the High Plains executives to undergo compulsory mediation with Parks to attempt an amicable resolution. A district spokesperson said in an email that district does not comment on ongoing litigation, but it denies Parks' claims that it discriminated or retaliated against her. Okay, so let's just pause. Let's take a step back. Trevor Reed covers public safety issues for the Greeley Tribune. That's what the little bio at the bottom of this article in the Greeley Tribune has to say. It's a very curious thing to me that this would be presented as a public safety concern. It's a very curious thing to me that the guy who is supposed to be covering public safety issues is writing about this librarian being fired. Let me just propose a couple of scenarios here in which this could be about public safety and also isn't about public safety in the way that the left in this country would want you to believe. So let's suppose I agree. Let's suppose I agree that this actually is a question of public safety. It is unsafe to be promoting homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism. It it is. It is unsafe. It is unsafe. It's unsafe, first and foremost, from a spiritual standpoint. It's unsafe, secondarily, from a mental and emotional health standpoint. It's also unhealthy and unsafe from a physical standpoint. This is unhealthy. This is unsafe. Part of how I know that it's unhealthy and unsafe is that even my just saying that could lead to a dangerous outcome for me. The library terminating this librarian has led to an unsafe outcome for the executives and the management of the library district. I know that this is a matter of public safety because exactly what the librarian is doing with trying to make this into a civil rights case is exactly what we will get more and more and more of throughout the community, throughout the county, throughout the state, throughout the country, if our libraries are enlisted, and they are being enlisted in promoting homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, queerness, and just wait, soon to be pedophilia. Already, but wait, there's more. It'll get worse. I know that these things are unsafe already because people are being threatened. People are having their livelihoods destroyed. People are having their reputations destroyed. People are being thrown out of companies. People are losing their jobs. I know that this is unsafe because people are already being hurt by the perverts and the sexual deviants who realize that right now, if they claim victimhood status, they can victimize other people. They, they know. They know this, and they are being rewarded for acting on that knowledge. And it is a culture war. It is a cold civil war, and we didn't start it as Christians. Now, if you want to know my truest, deepest uh, heart <laughs> on who started the culture war, 
Uh, I would say that prime of place goes to Satan as the instigator. Hath God said, hath God said, prime of place for the initiator of these culture wars is Satan himself. And then humanly speaking, in our context, you have folks like Howard Zinn and Margaret Sanger. You have folks like Saul Alinsky, like Barack Obama, like Joe Biden. Humanly speaking, in our cultural context, you have people like this librarian who were fired, who are the ones actually pushing for the radical redefinition of anything and everything, because what they really want is to redefine our wealth and power and status as theirs. They're not first and foremost trying to get equality. They're trying to get dominance because this is about power. It's about terrorizing normal, healthy, and relatively sane people into submission. I know that this is a matter of public safety, but it's not a matter of public safety the way that the folks calling this a civil rights case would have you believe. It's just not. Now, I do find fault with the High Plains Library District in just reading this, if I'm getting the right impression. They ordered the librarian who was fired to change the name of the book club. They didn't want to call it a Read Woke book club because that would be too inflammatory. Now, here's my big question. If all of the same books are in the reading list and you change the name of the book club, all you've really done is made a cowardly move to avoid upset. And it didn't even work. It didn't even work. And you you, you get no credit. You get no credit for that. So you might as well just say, actually, let's get to the root. The root is that this content is manipulative and abusive and corrosive and evil. This is evil content. And you can't just say free speech, free speech, free speech, free speech. You might be free to say evil things and to say things that are demonstrably false. You are free, but you are not free to say those evil things without consequences. There will be consequences. Even if only from the Lord God Almighty, you will be called to account for every idle word and for every untrue thing that you said. He hates lying lips. They are an abomination to him. Those who sow discord among brothers, he hates them according to his word. He hates those who stir up strife. He hates those who slander. One of the first 10 that were actually written by the finger of God on tablets of stone and given to Moses for the children of Israel, but not just for the children of Israel, also for us ourselves, I would say, one of the first 10 commandments is thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. It matters a great deal. You might be free to slander your neighbor, as in you have the ability, you can choose to slander your neighbor. That does not mean you can slander your neighbor without consequences. And you can't just abracadabra the problem of the evil away by saying free speech, free speech, free speech. And to be very clear, why, (laughs) why oh why is it a civil rights case to fire the librarian, but it's not an infringement on civil rights when people are able to bully and terrorize 
with woke ideology, with gender ideology, with critical race theory, why is that not a violation of civil rights? Why is that not a violation of freedom of speech or freedom of association or freedom of religion? That somebody in a position of authority would terminate the employment of somebody under their employ, under their management, because they say, you're not doing a good job. Also, you're causing trouble. You're stirring up trouble. You are promoting things that we told you to stop promoting. Who's in charge, actually? If managers can't terminate people based on poor performance, insubordination, disrespect, who's actually in charge? But see, that question, that is more to the point because that's what this is about. This is a power grab. This is Mao's cultural revolution. And the kangaroo courts filled with people who are themselves terrified that if they don't rule with the revolution, they themselves will be the next target of the revolution. Those kangaroo courts are an instrument of the revolution. So the civil rights division of the state of Colorado becomes the, from a regulatory standpoint, from a legal standpoint, becomes the Gestapo here in America. And all of a sudden, it's not about some trait that you're born with and you can't affect, you can't change. All of a sudden, it's about even the choices that you make, but then the claim is, well, you can't choose, right? You can't choose who you're attracted to. You can't choose who you love. That's not true. That is not true. Not the way that you mean love and not the way that you mean choose. What you really actually mean is that I don't want to choose not to have sex. I don't want to. Don't say can't, say aren't, say haven't, say don't want to, because that's closer to the point. That's the real claim being made and being debated. I don't want to, and you can't make me. And then occasionally somebody says, well, I can make you. And so long as the person who said you can't make me is a homosexual, a bisexual, transgender, queer, they can say, oh, help, help, I'm being repressed. It's corrupt. It's evil. It's evil. See, it's not enough that there's a lie told in what gender you are. See, that's a lie. But if you're willing to lie on that, then why would it be too much for you to lie about being oppressed or having your civil rights violated? And how is it possible to work together, live together in a state where the truth is whatever the angriest, most offended people say it is? How is it possible to live in a state of affairs where it's not just your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. It's that our truth might be one thing today and something totally different tomorrow. And whatever it is tomorrow, even if you were on the right page today, the truth tomorrow might give us carte blanche to destroy you, to destroy your reputation, to destroy your career, to destroy your business, to destroy you eventually, physically. And that's what we see in the Old Testament examples. In the case of Lot living in Sodom, in the case of the Levite who happened to be in the Benjamite town of Gibeah. Initially, the men of the town, in both cases, it's men, the men of the town come knocking on the door of their neighbor and say, send out your guests. 
so that we can have sex with them. And then when they're told no in both stories, they become enraged. When they're told no, and in both cases, it's remarkable the the parallels here. It's emphasis through repetition. We're supposed to understand something about the dynamics inherent to gay culture. In both cases, when the mob of homosexuals gets angry at being told no, no, you can't, no, you're not allowed, they turn murderous because it's not, a, it's not about sex, first and foremost. It's about who's in charge. It's about authority. It's about power. It's about dominating everybody around them because they themselves are dominated by and enslaved to their sexual appetites. They want everyone else to be as well. And a society cannot, cannot survive when that is a feature. It just can't. It is not compatible. In the case of Sodom, God himself destroys the city of Sodom. If there's not justice, humanly speaking, at a certain point, God will intervene and he will put us out of our misery as a people. Now, if we stay true as individuals, if we love God, we are called according to his purpose. He will work all things to the good for us, and we can take heart in that. We don't have to despair. We don't have to lose our wits. We don't have to freak out. We don't have to be terrorized. All it takes to not be terrorized is to refuse to be afraid. I'm not afraid of your threats. I'm not afraid of what you're going to do to me. I don't fear you. I fear God. That's all it takes. And God will look after us, and God will protect us, and God will provide. And ultimately, if there's not repentance, God will judge He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means the same God who destroyed Sodom with fire and brimstone will also judge the United States of America if we become like the cities of the plain, like Sodom and Gomorrah. But here's the thing. In the one case, in the one case in Genesis, which I'm still reading through every day, you have Sodom being destroyed by God. In the other case, you've got the men of Gibeah, murdering a man's concubine, raping her to death. And the whole rest of Israel comes and judges. They come against Benjamin and they judge Benjamin as a tribe because Benjamin won't give up the men of Gibeah for judgment. And it's not either or. It's not that the rest of Israel is taking matters into their own hands in an ungodly way. No, they are doing justice. Like Micah 6, 8 says, Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. If you have an opportunity to extend mercy and you can actually help somebody to come to a place of repentance by being merciful, absolutely do that. Don't be haughty and full of yourself as you're doing justice and loving mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Keep oneself unspotted from the world. But do justice, man. Do justice. God is going to do justice, and if we don't do justice, then part of the justice that God is going to do will be directed at us. And that's not where we want to be. We need to be warning, and we need to be calling to repentance while there is time for repentance. At a certain point, it won't be time for repentance. It'll be time for judgment. And at that point, it's too late. The common denominator here, why this is not just crazy, is because there's an incentive structure built up to reward people who claim to have been oppressed. 
And it doesn't mean that there's never oppression and nobody has civil rights and civil rights can't be violated, but you don't have a right to do wrong. That's the point. The common denominator here is that you have people wanting to claim as rights evil things that they say, evil things that they do. You don't have a right to do what is evil. You can't have a right to do what is wrong. You have the right to do what is right. But in order to do what is right, you have to know what is right. And you can't shout down people who tell you what is right and then turn right around and say, oh, yes, I'm, I'm quite correct. I'm quite correct. I'm the victim. No, no, you're not. You're the villain. You are the villain of the story. Repent, repent, and don't give into this. It's like rewarding a toddler when they throw a tantrum. If you reward tantrums, you will get more tantrums. If you reward the throwing of fits and violent outbursts and disrespect and nagging, if you reward threats, you will get more threats. And then they will push the envelope and they'll see, hey, can I get more if I threaten even harder? And what if I just throw in a little bit of violence as well? Let's see how much more I can get out of this pinata. The angrier I get, the more unreasonable, the more vindictive. Moving on. Biden's State of the Union address was the second least watched of the last 30 years. And you won't believe where his largest audience came from. So get this. NBC News tweets out, President Biden draws second smallest State of the Union audience in at least 30 years. Viewership was down nearly 28% from the 38.2 million people who watched the president's address in 2022. The only smaller audience... Get a load of this. The only smaller audience since 1993 was the 26.9 million who watched Biden's address to Congress in 2021. Not officially a State of the Union speech since he had just taken office a few months earlier. That speech was delivered on the unusually late date of April 28th. So that is that President Biden holds the worst and the second worst place ratings in 30 years. Not the B reports. What's most incredible is where he got most of those viewers. And this is a quote from NBC News. Biden's largest audience came on Fox News Channel, where the speech was seen by 4.69 million people, Nielsen said. ABC had 4.41 million viewers for Biden. NBC had 3.78 million. CBS had 3.64 million. MSNBC had 3.55 million. CNN had 2.4 million. And the Fox Broadcast Network had 1.66 million. I watched on YouTube, for what it's worth. Speaking of Joe Biden, I'm going to go ahead and play a short clip shared by Benny Johnson from PBS and NewsHour's interview with the president regarding classified documents. Here is what he has to say about what we're just now finding out. Take a listen. I made voluntarily, no one's had to threaten to do anything. Voluntarily open every single aperture I have with the house, offices, everything for them to come and look and spend hours searching my home, invited them. Nobody. And so, and the best of my knowledge, 
the kinds of things they picked up are things that from 1974 and stray papers. There may be something else I don't know. <sighs> yes, I'm sure. I'm sure there is more that you don't know. But 1974, ni- 1974, really, ni- 1974, classified documents from 1974. Is that to say that Joe Biden has been mishandling classified documents for almost 50 years at this point? Is that is that what I'm understanding? For almost 50 years? Hmm. Very curious. Very curious. Maybe he'll file a complaint with the Civil Rights Division there in Delaware. Moving on. Speaking of civil rights, Montana is preparing to uphold the Constitution. Here's how the AP phrased it. Daniel Payne over at Not the Bee posted this one this morning. It's a embedded tweet from Ben Shapiro. Alternative headline, Montana bill would not force students to lie about reality. So the AP headline is Montana bill would let students misgender classmates. Amy Beth Hansen wrote that one. Montana bill would let students misgender classmates. That's quite a spin. That's quite, quite a spin. This is not crazy. This is culture war. This is shock and awe. This is a power grab. It's domino theory, but applied internally to the U.S. Montana bill would let students misgender classmates. No, no. The Montana bill would protect students if they call their classmate the proper pronoun instead of the preferred pronoun. Because we should be free to call a boy he and him. We should be free to call a girl she and her. It's not crazy. It's evil to disagree with that. It's not crazy. It's evil. It's corrupt. It's malicious. It's unsafe. It's dangerous. It's a very, very dangerous place that we find ourselves culturally. People are being tagged for misgendering or so-called dead naming. They're being tagged for destruction. Do you know where the dehumanizing language is to be found? On the left, listen to how they talk about people such as you and I, if we disagree with their transgender ideology. Listen to how they talk about us when we call for repentance of sexual immorality, not claiming to perfection, but saying, this is bad. We, we, need to, we need to call for repentance. We need to not affirm this. We need to not celebrate it. It's bad. I know you're enjoying yourself, but stop, please, please stop. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting other people. And this is going to a very, very dark place. This is going to death. Please stop. Listen to how you and I are described, characterized, talked about, maligned, marginalized. We are the marginalized. And it's not important, first and foremost, who's the majority, who's the minority. It doesn't matter. The truth is the truth. It doesn't matter what you prefer. The truth is the truth. It doesn't matter how you feel. The truth is the truth. If your feeling contradicts the truth, then 
you should ignore your feelings. I'm not going to say you should repent of them, but you should ignore them. And if you don't ignore them, and if you claim that they somehow sanctify whatever you want to do, you should repent of that because you will be willing to do literally anything when you feel like it. Historically, biblically, we know this. It's not theory and it's not conjecture and I'm not imagining it. But you are gaslighting me when you deny it. And you are slandering me if you call me ugly names for pointing these very self-evident, very obvious, very incontrovertible truths out. And you should repent of that too. You might have felt like calling me an ugly name, but that doesn't make it right. You don't get to just do and say whatever you feel like without consequences. There will be consequences. If not humanly speaking, in this life, certainly before our creator. And so we should repent. We should avail ourselves of God's grace now when we can repent and live or keep on and be destroyed and destroy yourself. Amy Beth Hansen and the Associated Press should repent, for instance, of this headline. And I'm sure the rest of the articles know better, but Montana Bill would let students misgender classmates. No, actually, the Montana bill would protect Montana students when they correctly identify the gender of their classmates. You've got this exactly backwards, inside out, upside down. You're exchanging bitter for sweet and you need to repent. You need to repent because you are part of the problem. You are aiding and abetting what, if uninterrupted, will be murder. Not of transgender kids and not of homosexual kids and not of bisexual kids when they just break down because what you told them would make them happy. Yeah. They, they say, oh, it would just make me so happy to be the opposite gender. And you say, yeah, that'll make you happy. And that'll be really great. And you're so brave when it doesn't make them happy. The dopamine dump, when they realize they got exactly what they wanted and they're still unhappy. In fact, they're even more miserable than ever because now they've got all these health problems. The dopamine dump, that's going to be where they're most vulnerable to committing suicide. Not when people like me say, no, 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 no. That's not going to make you happy. It's going to destroy you. The most loving thing we could possibly tell these kids and adults, people of all ages, because it's not a factor of age first and foremost, except where teachers and activists are doing an evil thing to corrupt youth and to try and brainwash them and create an incentive structure for this trying to get more of it. The most loving thing is to tell the people of all ages who are being sucked in by this, stop, stop, don't, don't do it. The most unloving and selfish thing is to affirm this, to affirm this moment, to endorse it, to encourage it. It's the most selfish thing. Moving on. Here's an article from the Daily Wire. Oregon. Alcohol regulators used their power to get their hands on rare, ultra-expensive bourbon. Investigation finds. Hmm. Would you look there? Do you, do you mean to tell me that regulators, people who are in government, sometimes abuse their power? Is that what you mean to tell me? Do you mean to tell me that sometimes people in government might be tempted to confiscate things that don't belong to them so that they themselves can enjoy those things is that what you is that what i'm 
No, surely not. Surely, surely not. (laughs) Here's a quote. After requesting the head of the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission's resignation, my administration became aware that leaders within this agency, including the director himself, abused their position for personal gain per their own admission in an internal investigation, Oregon Governor Tina Kotek wrote in a letter to the commission. This behavior is wholly unacceptable. I will not tolerate wrongful violations of our government's ethics laws. I urge the commission to install new leadership and remove the managers and executive leadership who have taken advantage of their access and authority to benefit themselves. It's a funny thing because like there's a little bit of wishy-washiness even in this statement. I will not tolerate wrongful violations. Is there any other kind? Wrongful violations of our government ethics laws? Honest question. Honest question. Somebody, somebody let me know. Is it possible to have any other kind? I love this comment down below. I scrolled down just for anyhow, keep Kofif great. <laughs> 16 hours ago, drunk on power, dot, 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 and delicious, delicious bourbon. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Okay, moving on. Here's uh, back to not the bee. Peter Heck has a piece up this morning. What the heck? Commies trauma and the grilling of Yol Roth. <sighs> Sounds like my kind of title, right? He shares a tweet, embeds a tweet from a Tim Anderson with side-by-side pictures of a Nazi in uniform and a communist in uniform. The Nazi caption reads, started the Holocaust. The communist caption reads, ended the Holocaust. Underneath both of them, it says, that is the difference. So essentially, what we, what we, what we see here. What we see here is a little bit of revisionism, just a little bit, because it wasn't it wasn't just the commies. It was not just the commies who stopped Nazi Germany. It was also the United States of America. Thank you very much. Both my grandfathers served in the armed forces. It was also the United States of America. Uh, also, by the way, let's do consider that the Holocaust pales in comparison to the death toll of communist regimes like Stalin's, like Mao's. So no, your argument is invalid. Also too, can I point out that in some sense, the communists facilitated the Holocaust when Stalin and Hitler made their non-aggression pact at the outset, which gave Hitler a free hand to push West and then he violated it because, of course, right? Of course, somebody who's willing to do what Hitler did to people is definitely also willing to lie to you. Fun fact. But he violated it. And that was his biggest mistake, practically speaking, strategically. If Hitler would have mopped everything up in the West and then turned on Stalin, that would have been much more clever. But nevertheless... I'm going to play another clip for you. This one from Marjorie Taylor Greene, interrogating Yol Roth, who was very recently, until very recently, a pretty influential decision maker over at Twitter. Take a listen to this exchange. It's not long. It's a minute and some change. And we'll talk about it. 
Mr. Roth, as the head and trust of safety at Twitter, your ability, or should I say inability, to remove child porn. Now, here's something that disgusts me about you. In your doctoral dissertation entitled Gay Data, you argued that minors should have access to Grindr, an adult male gay hookup app. Minors? Really? You know, Elon Musk took over Twitter and he banned 44,000 accounts that were promoting child porn. You permanently banned my Twitter account, but you allowed child, child porn all over Twitter. Twitter had become a platform, you said, connecting queer young adults. You also wrote on Twitter in 2010, can high school students ever meaningfully consent to sex with their teachers? In 2021, while you were the director of trust and safety on Twitter, an underage boy and his mother announced a lawsuit against Twitter because, because Twitter was benefiting from and refused to remove a lewd video featuring this boy and another minor. That is repulsive. Yes. Yes, it is, actually. <laughs> hmm. Where to begin? How about the tweet of this video from C-SPAN? A guy by the name of Aiken? Aiken? He tweets out this video with comment. And now the hearing is off the rails as Green attacks Roth. Oh, you see, you see. <laughs> She's attacking him. She's attacking him. So he is the victim. Don't you see? She is the bad person, right? She is the oppressor. He is being oppressed right here. Josh P., Elon Musk is a fragile racist man baby. That's his name, supposedly. Probably not his birth name. That's probably not what his parents named him. Just just a guess. Uh, at Chubby Navy Vet is his actual handle, uh, account name, what have you. He comments in reply to the video. Roth should consult with an attorney because he may have a solid case against Marjorie Taylor Greene for defamation. Make it hurt her in the one place she actually cares about, her own wallet. Hmm. Boy, that sounds an awful lot like the thing that I was just talking about happening locally or in my home state of Montana, where when people tried to do justice and question, call to account, disapprove of we'll just sum it up. We'll, we'll make this very simple. When people try to tell the LGBTQ plus plus crowd, no, the people saying no are the bad guys. And now it needs to be open season on them. Now they need to be made to pay. Now they need to be taught a lesson that you're not going to tell us no. How dare you? How dare you tell us no? How dare you disapprove of our allowing child porn on Twitter? How dare you disapprove of our writing doctoral theses about pedophilia, normalizing pedophilia, making a serious argument in favor of pedophilia, not just homosexuality, but pedophilia? We'll show you. How dare you tell us no? How dare you disapprove? 
how dare you discriminate? And then what are they going to do? They're, they're going to discriminate against the people who tried to tell them no. It's the same song. It's just a different verse. Let's do talk about some other testimony. Here's a video. I'll play a short clip. Just under two minutes of a former FBI agent talking about her career, her experience from the inside to the oversight of Justice Department at FBI effort by Republicans being spearheaded by Republicans. Participating in the investigations of myriad criminal cases, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida, the 2017 Fort Lauderdale Airport shooting, the Caesar Syok pipe bomb case, multi-million dollar Ponzi schemes, crimes on the high seas, bank robberies, murders for hire, sexual assaults, extortions, and more. Yes, it was physically taxing and emotionally jarring, but I believed I was making an impactful difference. And every day I woke up and I embraced being an FBI special agent until things changed. Over the course of my 12 plus years, the FBI's trajectory has transformed. On Bureau, the, papers, the Bureau's mission it remained the same, but its priorities and governing principles shifted dramatically. The FBI became politically weaponized, starting from the top in Washington and trickling down to the field offices. Although FBI employees have their First Amendment rights, they are not at the liberty to allow their personal political views or preferences to determine their course of action or inaction in any investigation. Lady Justice must remain blind. Those that do not uphold these responsibilities cause a negative ripple effect throughout the agency in the field. It's as if there became two FBI's. Americans see this and it is destroying the Bureau's credibility, causing Americans to lose faith in the agency and therefore the hardworking and highly ethical agents who still do the heavy lifting and pursue noble cases. Yes, but also too, <clears throat> thank you for one thing, for coming forward. Can I just say that as an American citizen? Uh, thank you to FBI agents like this who would come forward and they would talk with the House Judiciary Subcommittee about the weaponization of the FBI against conservatives, against American citizens who are law-abiding, exercising their constitutional rights, but also politically, socially, theologically opposed to what the weaponized FBI in favor of the left wants. It started at the top and it trickled down just like in libraries, just like in schools, just like in corporations, you get the right people at the very top and they do house cleaning. And they say, we're going to get rid of middle management and frontline management that dares to tell people in the field no and yes, based on the former paradigm, because now we are pursuing a different course. Now we're pursuing the progressive agenda and the leftist agenda. We've got to Get rid of those people who are standing in the way, who are telling us no. The FBI's ability, the DOJ's ability, the public school's ability, a public library's ability to actually serve the public good is entirely dependent on whether those organizations, those institutions know what is good. If they deny good as a category, or if they insist that they get 
the determination, final determination on what is good, without respect for the laws of God or man, then they are corrupt and they are actually the very threat they claim to be there to protect us against. They are the existential threat to our liberties and even our life. The idea that there would be two FBIs, one FBI, which is still pursuing the original mission as these special agents understood it to be, which is to protect and safeguard the American people. And another FBI, which sees their own vision for a future America as being the thing that ultimately needs to be protected. Those two FBIs cannot coexist. Those two Americas cannot coexist. Not when the choice is, on the one hand, your right to do what is right. And on the other hand, the insistence that people have the right to do what is wrong. And anyone who says no should be destroyed. Those two paradigms cannot coexist. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Those two paradigms cannot coexist. They just can't. And they're not. And the sooner we get wise to that, the better. Here's another news item from the Daily Wire. FBI headquarters purges leaked intelligence document targeting radical traditionalist Catholics. Quoting the Daily Wire report on this, FBI authorities purged from its system an unclassified intelligence document that targeted traditional Catholics following a whistleblower leak. FBI whistleblower Kyle Serafin says the document first published in Undercover DC specifically points to, quote, racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists in radical traditionalist Catholic ideology, end quote. Through tripwires and liaisons, which are trusted contacts, Serafin noted, the FBI can employ threat mitigation against such groups ahead of the next election. The document draws attention to the so-called radical traditional Catholic, described as someone who rejects the Second Vatican Council as a valid church council, shows disdain for most of the popes elected since Vatican II, and frequently adheres to anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQ, and white supremacy ideology. You know, what's curious about this, I'm not a Catholic, obviously, or maybe I shouldn't say that that's so obvious. Half my wedding party, when Lauren and I got married, was Roman Catholics who were friends of ours. But whenever people find out who don't know us very well, that we have eight kids, they say, oh, are you Catholic? (laughs) So (laughs) I guess it's not so obvious that I'm not a Catholic to those who don't know me very well. Also, their next guess is always, it's always, oh, are you a Mormon? No, we're not Mormons either. I have been told that we are better Catholics and better Mormons <laughs> than the Catholics and Mormons that I've talked with at a time or two. I've had Catholics say like, oh, you're a better Catholic than I am. And I've had Mormons say, oh, you're a better, you're a better Mormon than I am. But nevertheless, all the same. As somebody who is not a Roman Catholic, who is staunchly Protestant, I'm reading through the definition of who would be a radical traditional Catholic, and they throw in the term ideology and white supremacy for good measure, of course, but they throw in the term ideology. I think this has more to do with theology first and foremost, theology informing the political philosophy, but it's an odd look for the FBI 
to start infiltrating the Roman Catholic Church in America so as to identify who the most conservative Catholics are and to paint them as a threat. I mean, really? Really? Hmm. Hmm. I think that that is unconstitutional. I think that that is completely out of step with at least the principles that this country was founded on. Not that I want to see America become a Roman Catholic country, but that's just it. It's a hop, skip, and a jump away to having an established church in this country if the FBI starts figuring out or deciding who to target based on their theology because they're too conservative in their theology, too conservative in their doctrine and their opinions and their beliefs about church polity. We're just a hop, skip, and a jump away from an established church. And that church is not going to be a recognizable historic Protestant or Catholic church. When this is the expression of it, it's going to be a woke church. It's the woke church. It's the church of woke. This might as well be the Salem witch trials all over again, because that's the way these people are carrying on. That's the way they're acting. You just point the finger at somebody and you say, oh, I think they have had communion with the devil. Only it's opposite world because people can literally make an entire Grammy performance out of pretending to have communion with the devil, literally, like publicly on live TV for the entire country and the entire world to watch and see. I mean, what does this do to our reputation as a country that the rest of the world is going to see this being permitted, tolerated, if not affirmed and celebrated and defended and excused? It is satanic. So maybe that's actually a better way to describe it. It's not going to be the woke church. It's going to be the church of Satan because it's Satanism. Is that who we are? Is that what we're about now? Going after conservative Protestants and conservative Christians and conservative Mormons and conservative even agnostics and atheists because their sin needs to be punished. Their sin of homophobia, transphobia, their sin of problematic thoughts and tweets and discrimination against whoever the protected class is at the moment, because we've got to redistribute not just money, not just attention, power. You know who the first schemer for radical redistribution of wealth and power was? Satan. He wanted to redistribute God's power to himself, God's authority to himself, God's glory to himself. He also presented himself as the hero. Hmm. Hmm. It's not crazy. It's upstream of crazy. It's evil. It's satanic. Literal, actual Satanism. And it can't be tolerated. It can't be accommodated. It can't be compromised with. It can't be affirmed. It can't be celebrated. It can't be allowed. It must stop. And the concerning thing is, just like with the culture war, I mean, here's the, here's the curious thing. Some gal decides she wants to become a dude. And then she says, at a certain point, call me he, him. Those are my preferred pronouns. You keep calling her, her. 
And she says, I don't want to be known as Michelle anymore. I want to be called Michael. And you keep calling her Michelle. Who started it? If you're a manager or a business owner or just a homeowner, and she comes knocking on your door, angry, how dare you? How dare you disapprove of my lifestyle? How dare you tell me that I'm wrong? How dare you tell me no? We're going to do worse to you than we would have to this other person over here that you dared to plead for and protect. It doesn't matter if the he was a she before, the she was a he before. It doesn't matter. The common root is not crazy. The common root is evil. Again, I would say repent. Repent while there's time. There is time and we need repentance on all sides. On all sides. The conservatives have got to repent of trying to conserve what was built up by Christian faith in this country without Christian faith. The conservatives have got to repent of trying to protect and defend while also making no mention of God's authority, when that really is what this all goes back to. We don't all have to agree about every little particular in relation to what God wants from us, how he wants to be worshipped, what our church polity should look like, humanly speaking, what all books are and are not authoritative to our life and practice. We don't all have to agree on those things, and we don't, and we won't. But we should all be able to agree that if we believe that all men are created equal, we believe that that's a self-evident truth, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If we believe that our rights come from God, then we also must do more than just complain when Kamala Harris leaves out the obligatory reference in a speech about abortion, which Biden put back in in his State of the Union address. Not that it counts for anything when he's acting the way that he is. Peace, peace. When there is no peace, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that shouldn't be us either. But that is to say, we should repent. We should repent of honoring God with our lips while our hearts are far from him. We should repent. We should repent of being hypocrites and play acting. We should repent of appeasing and affirming or falling silent. We should repent of not opening our mouths in defense of those who are being led away to the slaughter. Literally. See, it it started out with you will affirm the normalcy and health and goodness of my homosexual relationships and lifestyle. It started out there, but then it didn't even start out there because before that, it was, you will affirm my right as a woman to everything and anything that a man would have and do because there's no difference between men and women. The seeds of the transgender moment that we're occupying right now, the seeds of the homosexual onslaught we are subjected to now were planted in the claims of feminism. And those also, they represent a rejection of God's authority. Not, first and foremost, man having authority, but first and foremost, God's authority. And the or else, the or else is 
at a certain point we find we've eaten the forbidden fruit and now we're sick and it's terminal. Just a few short years ago, it was a debate about gay marriage, so-called. And then before you knew it, it was boys and girls need to be able to use each other's bathrooms and whatever happens, happens. And don't you dare object. Now we've progressed along the evil number line to literally debating whether children should be all cut up and medicated for the rest of their lives. We are being threatened with legal, verbal, and even physical violence when we object, when we say no. Because that, that really is the common denominator that the people on the left refuse to be told no. They're not accustomed to being told no. They don't like it. We have to say no. The answer is no. There is no other hand. The answer has to be no. And we have to hold to that. We have to stick to that. You know, I've been telling our kids in my household here, I mean, since they were old enough to understand what it was that I was saying, but here lately, again, I've been reinforcing that we are practicing in this home for how we will be out in the wider world. And see, that's not just true of my kids. That's also true of myself as a parent, as a father. I can practice saying no to things that would harm my children or that would be a bad outcome for them and for other people. I can practice saying no to my children when the answer needs to be no, because that's not a good thing. I can practice saying no if my kids say, oh, you never let me do anything fun in a very hyperbolic way. I can practice saying no when they throw a fit and a tantrum. I can practice saying no when they want something that doesn't rightly belong to them. I can tell you as a father of eight, it is not unusual to have a dispute between children and for as a parent, you to walk in and both are saying, well, he started it. One of them actually did start it. Now they both, they both might've participated in <laughs> it spiraling up and escalating. They both, they both might've been in the wrong, but one of them did actually start it. I always find that to be the case. One of them did actually start it. And if both of them misbehaved after the one of them started it, well, then they both do need to be corrected. They both do need to be reprimanded. But I'm practicing in my home, and you need to be as well. We need to be, all of us, not being bullied and not being nagged into just giving whoever's the whiniest, whoever throws the biggest tantrum, what they want all the time. We have to practice. And we've got to train our children to learn the meaning of the word no, to know what is right, to know what is good, to know what is true. Why? You might ask, why? Why do we need to, why, why do we need to teach them those things? Why, what does it matter? Because apart from that teaching, they can't, they can't love God. They can't love other people. They can only love themselves in a self-destructive way. And that is what we are seeing. We are seeing that played out at scale on a national level and in concentrated high dosages in cities across the country. And the only remedy is going to be we repent. We repent of that 
reckless self-love that in the end will destroy the object of our desire, which is our own happiness, first and foremost. First and foremost, what pleases God? Ask that. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But what pleases God? And what does faith look like? What does it sound like? What does it act like? How does it relate to the people around, family, friends, neighbors, countrymen? What does faith live like? It's not crazy. It's upstream of crazy. It's a sin problem. And we need Jesus. When we have Jesus, we need to obey his commands. What is it Jesus says in the Gospels? What is it that he says? Anyone who hears my words and does not live by them is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. We've got a lot of people who have heard the words of Jesus and they've built their houses on the sand. The storm is here. It's not coming. It's here. And it's going to get windier and it's going to get more violent. We've got to build on the rock. But how does that happen? How do we build on the rock? We hear these words of Jesus and we do them. And somebody will say, well, why do we need to do them? It's by grace through faith that we've been saved, not of works. You're right. And let's not boast. We're in no position to boast. But it's not faith without works. Faith without works is dead. Do we want a dead faith? Is that what we want? Do we think that that kind of faith can save? A dead faith can save? No, indeed. No, indeed. But again, to leave you on a happy note, there's a lot here that is concerning, disturbing, upsetting. We're not supposed to be anxious. Let's not be anxious. We're not supposed to be afraid of men. We're supposed to fear God. We're not supposed to grow weary in doing what is good. We're not supposed to hold on to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteous life that God requires. So yes, even our emotions come into play here. There is a righteous kind of anger, but be very careful. You're playing with fire. When you play with anger, be calm. In your anger, do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your wrath. We do not mourn as those who have no hope. But that is to say, we have hope. I would say, as a Christian, that if it pleases God, then we have hope for this life also. But the good that God has in store for us in the next, in the new heavens and the new earth, the good that he has for us as his children, if we are in him, if we are in Christ, the good that he has for us will only be all the sweeter. It will only be all the more pleasant and happy. You want happiness? You want to be happy? Put your hope in God, man. Don't store up treasures for yourself here on earth. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven with God where they'll be safe. Use your material wealth here to store up. And think of it like transferring. Transferring funds from the dollar to gold. You're buying gold in a sense. Buy favor with man, with your wealth, in a cheerful way. Seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Increase in the land and do not decrease. And when it's your time, it's your time. But in the meantime, be busy doing good works, doing good things, thinking on good things, saying true things. Take a wife. Have children with her. 
raise those children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Someday you'll be teaching them how to drive and give your sons and daughters in marriage. Jeremiah says, speaking the word of the Lord, give your sons and daughters in marriage so that they also will have children after them. Increase in the land and do not decrease. Build houses, plant vineyards, plant gardens. But I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.